Welcome to episode 47 of the Cyber Guy podcast. I am your host, retired FBI supervisory special agent, Darren Mott. And in this episode, we talk application whitelisting and why it's important to you and your cybersecurity safety with Corey Munson and Devin Bergen of PCmatic. So before we get to Corey and Devin and talking about what application whitelisting is and why it's important, uh, a couple things I want to note. Um, I have a new podcast that I've mentioned, but I'm going to mention it again, called the Get Cyber Smart Podcast. You can find it on all your regular podcast outlets. They're very short episodes. It's designed to be consecutive listening in the sense that it's more educationally focused where I talk about different cybersecurity topics, but each one kind of builds on the other. The idea is to give you kind of like a Cyber 101 course by podcast means. So I'm, I'm working through that. I've got a couple episodes in. I'm going to try to do that once a month. It's only, like I said, 10 minutes, 15 at the most. If I go over 15 minutes, I'm certainly doing that podcast wrong. So these would be short topics that you can digest quickly. If you're a technically oriented person, it's probably not the podcast for you, but it is for your relatives and folks that call you and say, hey, how do I get my mouse to work? So let them know, hey, listen to this podcast. It'll give you some background and some basic cyber knowledge. Um, and, you know, hopefully people will enjoy it. It's just getting off the ground. So any word of mouth that you can give to that is greatly appreciated. One of the things I'm looking to do with both the Cyber Guy podcast and with the Get Cyber Smart podcast is I'm actually going to move into a Twitch environment where I'm going to try to stream my podcast on Twitch as I'm recording them. And then as I record them, I'll record the video as well and post those on YouTube. So just some extra places for folks to find this information. And, and you know, my, my whole goal is to get people to understand the cyber threats that are out there so they can assess their risk and proceed wisely. And so by doing all of these things, it gives everyone the opportunity to, to get the information they want. And as we go further down the line, there'll be other offerings that I can make available and, and you know, try to make the world a safer place. Make you and your family protected online so that if you get a little cyber smarter, you'll get a whole lot cyber safer. So with that, let me talk about a couple news articles uh, that were of interest to me that just kind of popped this week. So the first one is a Wall Street Journal article, and I'm not reading this from Wall Street Journal because I do not have an account, so I can't access the article, but this is from uh, Herald.ng, a Nigerian newspaper, actually. Um, but it talks about this particular study, and the headline is, TikTok recommends sex, drugs, and alcohol-themed content to minors aged 13 to 15. This, I think, is an interesting article, and it shows the dangers of apps that are your your kids built can access that you can access that have deeper underlying threats that we maybe not realize. So let me read from this article a little bit. But so this is the um, this is from Paul Bagawu. I apologize if I mispronounced his name. He's the one who wrote this. So a new investigation from the Wall Street Journal this week revealed that TikTok algorithms are routinely serving up sexual content and content containing drugs and alcohol to children as young as thirteen. Using the app under the guise of being a 13-year-old user who searched for the term OnlyFan, TikTok even presented the user of two instances of selling pornography. Sexually oriented videos were also included in TikTok's For You page, the investigation revealed. Content on this page, which is similar to Twitter's timeline, is based off of prior searches and contents that a user has spent the most time searching for, the Daily Mail added. As a 13-year-old user, and this is the fictitious 13-year-old user, browsed more sexual content, more was recommended to them, despite the user's age clearly being marked as 13 in their profile. 
And apparently, um, this particular 13-year-old fictitious user was shown 569 videos about drug use, including cocaine and meth addiction. So why do I bring this up to you? Well, chances are, if you are listening to this podcast and you have a teenager, I can almost guarantee they probably have TikTok on their device, their, their phone, their iPad, whatever. So... Should this be of worry to you? Of course it should. So this is why you as parents or you as the adults need to take a very active interest. And if you already do this, great. But if you don't, you know, think about the threats beyond just the cyber threats, just the, the morality threats, the, the, the targeting of the youth um, by folks wanting to do bad things online and just the algorithms of, this, of TikTok in general serving up videos you necessarily do not want your kids to see. So how do you police this? Well, you get rid of TikTok until they're adults and can do what they want to. That would be my recommendation. It's an extreme recommendation, but you know, it is what it is. It, 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 and again, all of this comes down to risk, really. Everything I talk about comes down to risk. If you're willing to accept the risk potential and, you know, if you trust your kids not to be doing these things, that's certainly fine. There's that, that, that's what you need to do, but just understand the increased risk that TikTok and other apps like it, I'm sure if you go to Instagram, there are plenty of sexually exploitative accounts that, you know, show different things that, you know, could cause different reactions from different people looking at it. I'll say it that way. You know, that could cause other issues down the line. Do people actively look for and target, do, 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 do child predators actively you know, target kids on these platforms. Absolutely, they do. Also, do it on video game platforms. So you got to be careful who your friend, your kids are friends on there. I mean, a lot of, a lot of different things with this. Um, if you want more detail on protecting your kids online, I actually have available for anybody who wants it. Just email me, Darren at the cyberguy.com or Darren at cybersmart.com. Remember, cyber spelled C Y B U R, but both emails are in the informational part of this podcast you can get when you download it. I can send you a PDF of two chapters from my friend Scott Ogenbaum's book, The Secret to Cybersecurity, about protecting your kids and protecting the elderly. The reason I say this, and I'm offering this, because the second article I want to talk about today is an example of how easy it is for the elderly to be scammed out of their money. So this is from infosecuritymagazine.com, and it is Sarah Coble reporting. The, tit- the, the article is uh, Cybersecurity Student Scam Senior Out of $55,000. This is from September 7th of this year. A British cybersecurity student has scammed an elderly woman out of thousands of dollars by pretending to be a member of Amazon's technical support team. 24-year-old Ramesh Karaturi contacted his victim over the phone and persuaded her to believe that cyber attackers had compromised her Amazon account. Karaturi's victim, who Cleveland police said was a Scottish resident in her 60s, was then manipulated into installing what she thought was protective antivirus software onto her computer. When the woman installed this program that gave Karaturi remote access to her machine, or that's what it did, sorry, police said the victim suspected she had been tricked after Karaturi instructed her to leave the downloaded program and running. And so basically what he did, he he was able to get in and... um, uh, ultimately steal $55,000 from her account. And the reason I say this, this Amazon scam is very common. I've talked to some family members who had um, elderly family members who who were victims of this particular scam or versions of this scam. The reason I say it, it's very, I'm mentioning this, and I've mentioned this is not something new I've mentioned, but it just goes to show the constant continuation of the exploitation of the elderly online. But, you know, we need, you need to uh, look 
in addition to protecting your kids, look for protecting your elderly relatives who may not be spending a lot of time worrying about cybersecurity, listening to cybersecurity podcasts and things like that. And, you know, not everyone has the time for no one really. I mean, you know, 99.7% of the world doesn't pay attention to cyber threats. Uh, and I, I even saying that I appreciate those of you who listen to this podcast to try to better understand it and share it with others. Because again, my goal here is to create people, not create, not create people, but help people better understand the threats out there so they don't have to become a victim and have to call the police and say, I just lost $55,000. So just understand scams like this are out here. It's very easy to target the elderly because they're very trusting. Um, you know, if they have an Amazon account, they may believe it, even though Amazon wouldn't contact folks that way, but it happens all the time. I get phone calls all the time with online scams that I just delete and, you know, try to block the numbers, but they just come in as a different number. So again, this this goes to this PDF I'm offering. You're, you're, I will send it to you for free. Just send me an email. I'll send you the PDF. There is no other. I'm not going to send you anything else other than the PDF. I'm not going to ask you to buy anything. Um, so feel free to to avail yourself of that. Let me know. I'll post it or I'll, I'll email it to you. You can read it and get some information with that. So that's kind of the news I wanted to touch on for this week. Um, and so let us go talk to about application whitelisting, what it is, why it's important for you to consider, and where it's the future of cybersecurity in the sense of how companies and individuals can really do a nice job protecting their information, preventing ransomware, and things like that. And we we're going to do that with some guys from PCmatic. So it's my pleasure to welcome to the CyberGuy podcast, Corey Munson, the vice president of PCmatic, and Devin Bergen, the product manager of PCmatic. And we're going to talk about application whitelisting. We're going to talk about the PCmatic product. But first, as I like to do with most of my guests, is talk about your background. So Corey, Devin, thank you so much for taking the time out to talk to me on this Thursday afternoon as football season gets rolling. And probably it's what we're all thinking about is what football game can I go to or watch this weekend? So. Thanks for having us. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about your background. Um, Corey, you, so as, as VP of PCmatic, um, how long have you been with them? What did you do before that? What's your, you know, what's your, you know, two minute overview of your career? Sure. Well, I've been with the company for going on 15 years now. Um, prior to that, I worked for uh, Gateway. So those of us that are, have enough gray hair that remembers getting a, a PC delivered to your house in a cow spotted box. I was part of that organization where uh, that's where I actually got connected to the current CEO and founder of PCmatic, Rob Chang. He was a senior vice president at Gateway and he oversaw sales and support and, and marketing. I was actually part of his organization where I spent roughly eight plus years at, uh, at Gateway. So, um, you know, my technology background goes back to the old PC days and the 386s and 486s and the math code processors and all all that fun stuff during the PC boom and is extended now into spending more time on the cybersecurity side here with PCmatic. All right. Was your first foray into the internet um, Prodigy or CompuServe? It was probably CompuServe and I probably straddled that line into, into the early AOL adopters. Oh too. yeah, sure, sure. So, um, yeah, the back nice, in the, the good nice, old days, the nice GUI interface. So, Devin, mm -hmm. so we're we're doing this on Zooms. Devin, you're much younger than the two of us. So, so, so you probably started with uh, you know, Intel series three or four. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say I'm a little bit earlier in my career than Corey is, but I think I have about the same amount of gray hair. So, it's, you know, that's not a good measurement of uh, of time. But uh, yeah, I've been like about six years now. Um, and uh, that was pretty much where I jumped right out of college. So I just 
most of my career story is pretty short, uh, but I've done at this point uh, pretty much everything that we've got going on in, in PCmatic I've had my hands in. So I do, like you mentioned, product management and the front and back end web development and, um, you know, helping out with testing and customer support and marketing and all kinds of stuff. So I'm kind of all over the place. I've done malware research for a little bit in my career here as well. So I got, some, got a little bit deep into the cyber side as well when I first started here. So um, kind of have a little, bit, a little bit all over the place. Great. So, so let's talk about PCmatic first off. Everybody's seen the commercials. PCmatic's been around for 15 years, or at least 15 years. Corey's been there 15, so I assume you started at the beginning. Um, and so it's an AV vendor, among other things, but I'm sure it's more than just antivirus. I know it's more than antivirus. So why don't, but why don't you guys tell me, tell us, tell the uh, folks listening, you know, how did PCmatic come to be? Why was it created? Because obviously you've got the historical... Symantec, McAfee, all those guys have been around forever that, you know, jumped on Eugene Kaspersky's coattails and said, hey, let us join the Russian malware symposiums or whatever they call them, or their consortium, so you can send us all your stuff and all that crap. So tell us, what's the, what's the quick history of PCmatic, how did it come to be, and and talk a little bit about the features it has and things like that. Let me jump in, and then uh, Devin can fill in what what I leave out, and he's always good at that. Um, he and I do the uh, good cop, bad cop thing a lot. So PC Medic's been around for, it's actually over 20 years now. And like I mentioned before, Rob Chang's our CEO and founder. And, you know, he walked out of Gateway and knowing that one of his chief responsibilities there was support. And that's back in the days when Windows machines didn't age very well. I mean, they, they were... Um, you know, rapidly accumulating junk files, things like that. And Windows did not really um, maintain itself very well. So one of the things Rob really invested in as he walked out of Gateway, is there, is there a better way for people to be able to troubleshoot and maintain their Windows PCs on their own? Because he saw support costs skyrocketing at, at Gateway and revenue kind of flatlining there. So he put together some technology and invested into some technology that allowed us to be one of the very first companies where you could actually go to a website, run some diagnostics through our, our web, web page and get some advice on how to tune up your, your Windows PC. And that was really the, the first 10, 12 years of the company were really focused on that, that element. And we built products around how to help people better optimize their PCs. What happened, um, you know, within that time frame or the tail end of that time frame was these these machines got better. Windows got to be a better OS in terms of uh, kind of self-healing and self-maintaining, but we rapidly saw the need for better security products. The more we dealt with consumers, the more we saw that they were having increasing numbers of security challenges. And one of the things we decided to invest in was, was there a better way to... Um, you know, get past the traditional antivirus um, types of software out there that in many cases we saw were failing. That's why people were getting infected. And so we went down the road of application whitelisting, which I know we'll talk about in detail. And that's where the company has really been focused over the last, I would say five or six years is building out that technology, even to the point where we've within the last year received two patents around it and been able to use that as the foundation for our consumer endpoint security product, but more importantly, our, our, our most um, 
I guess our strongest growth right now is on the B2B side. We're working with small and medium-sized businesses. We're working with state and local, state and local governments, um, even federal government to some degree in, in helping them check that box for rolling out application whitelisting as a better way to protect their, their endpoints. So that's, that's kind of a rambling version of where, where we've gone in 20 years, but our focus is definitely pivoted from the performance side, is where we started as a company, to being solely focused on security and specifically application whitelisting now. So we, we promote ourselves to, in the consumer space as an antivirus product, but really when it comes to working with uh, organizations and companies, we're very, very focused on what we can do in, as it relates to application whitelisting. What would you say is the percentage of the product piece that is focused on antivirus and then focused on the other security components? Has it? I, I mean, in listening to you, I assume it's it's shifted. I assume you know you were you were a lot of antivirus and some, some security. I assume that has moved. Is it more fifty fifty now, or is it still largely antivirus? Or is really is antivirus more of a antiquated term at this point, where really you don't buy an antivirus product anymore? I think that's where we're at. You know, from a consumer standpoint, I've always been an advocate for, for the fact that most consumers don't care how the sausage is made. They don't. They don't care what your security product is based on or what technology is under the hood. They simply want to know whether their computer is being protected or not. So I think antivirus has become kind of that catch-all for what security software do you have on on your your home PC. I think what we've seen as we work with organizations and companies of all sizes now is there, there is more interest on what can be done proactively and preventatively to protect their endpoints. And that's where we're drilling down into the technology versus the consumer side. It's more, hey, we've got a product that can protect you. If you want to understand what's under the hood, we're more than happy to show that to you. But most consumers just want to know whether it's working or not and whether they have to deal with viruses or what might come. So, Devin, let me ask you this question. So, if, if, if you ask the normal consumer when they buy PCmatic, they're, they're buying it to protect their, their computers. And they know that when they install it, they're going to they're gonna go through the installation and the little but the thing's going to beep, say, you're installed. It's going to run its updates and, and you're going to walk away saying, whoo, I am protected. But in the background, what does that anti, what does PCmatic do to detect threats, to detect malware? What is the, I mean, you don't have to get real deep into the how you program or anything, but what is, what is the program doing in the background? to detect those threats. I think that's something most folks don't, don't really think about it, but it'd be interesting to know just from a, from a perspective of here's what it's doing when, even when you're not sitting at it. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good question. So I, I think part of the thing for us too, is we don't, and it's I guess part of the whole using the antivirus term versus not antivirus term, whether things are still antivirus or not, we're, we're not really focusing as much on detecting threats in, in our products. Um, obviously that comes as part of it, but most of the focus is on, uh, preventing unknown applications from from running on the machine. So it, it, an easy way to think of it is um, like any kind of VIP party or event or anything. You've got somebody at the front door. They've got a list of everybody that's allowed in, and you know they come up to it. They check if your name's on the list. If it is, you get to go in. If it's not, you don't. And that's a really similar way to how our product protects computers. We've got a list of all the good applications we've ever seen. We're constantly supplementing that with new ones that are coming out, but. In the simplest terms, we're saying this is an application we know to be good and it's on our list. And if it's not, we just deny the execution. Uh, now it goes a little farther into saying, you know, hey, this is actually something we know to be bad. Let's get it removed and quarantined. But whether it's bad or not, or it's or it's unknown, it gets stopped at the front door and 
you know, then the rejection happens. So that's a great. So let's so let's move right into the application whitelisting piece, then, because that's an interesting way you put that. Because as I understand, and you correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm gonna I'm not I'm not the big technical guy here. I understand how it all works, but I don't can't program myself. But let's say if I have Norton, if I have Norton antivirus running. All right. I download a file, a DLL that is determined to be malicious. What Norton's doing is looking at known signatures that it has that says, I know this is bad. We should not allow it to run, as opposed to what you're doing, which is saying, okay, if something runs and it's trying to create a program or it's trying to create some kind of application on the computer, you're saying you're not allowed here. Is that is that a way to look at that from a difference from what PCmatic does versus some of the more you know traditional antivirus guys definitely yeah yeah their, their list is really saying these are the things that definitely can't run and our list is saying these are the things that only can run and everything else can't run so it's a much more preventative focus towards security okay so it's a blacklist versus a whitelist mentality yep and is pc exactly. the only ones using doing application whitelisting or do they all do it now how is the how is the community moved in that area are they moving in that direction are you guys the only one kind of moving in that direction either one of you can answer that one yeah, I'll throw in a little bit, and then I'm sure Corey can add something in there too. That's almost a, a whole other piece about terms in the industry is that saying that you do whitelisting can mean so many different things for different products. There, there's plenty of products that offer a whitelisting capability, and that's really saying, you know, for in your situation with McAfee there, that's saying, okay, these are the applications I never want McAfee to block. You know, I don't want them to think this is something that's bad. These are things I always want to be able to run. And basically every security product has that functionality for a user to say, this is something I always want to be able to run, but it's not using it in a prevention sense. Um, and then there's the, the traditional application whitelisting tools, which are mostly in the business space that, uh, you know, would require an, an IT department to manage a list and say, these are all the good things. And, you know, this is all that we want to allow, but um, not typically many in, in the consumer space, especially. Yeah, and I think Devin hit it right on the head, Darren. What what we're seeing is um, people recognize that you know the term application whitelisting can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And we're, what we're doing is taking a much broader approach with application whitelisting. And like you said, it's whitelisting versus blacklisting. We're flipping that on on its head. Blacklisting is no longer practical. We know malware is evolving every thirty seconds or so. So the idea that you can maintain a list of signatures that you're going to push out to endpoints. It's just no longer practical to think that that's going to do what it needs to do to, to protect. So we're, we're flipping that on its head and saying nothing's going to execute on these machines unless we know it to be good. And th that in itself isn't necessarily a new approach. That's been around forever. People have been able to manually configure things that way for as, almost as long as Windows has been around. The knock has been it's a headache to figure out how to build that whitelist, how to deploy it, how to manage it on an ongoing basis. And that's the big step forward we've taken um, is, is really coming, coming up with an economical and efficient way to do it, even for large organizations that are managing several thousand endpoints. We've got school districts with small IT staff of maybe one or two people that are using this product across five or 6,000 endpoints. That's, that's really the difference. And the shift now is it's more practical. It's still generally regarded as the gold standard for, gold standard for endpoint security. CISA, FBI, you, you name it, everybody is defining it that way. Now, is it something that you could 
conceivably deploy as a small business, yeah, it's it's now it's now an option. Where does it fit in the zero trust conversation? Because I mean, I think, and maybe it's just the stuff I watch and read or the people I follow on LinkedIn. But zero trust is a term being thrown around everywhere now. When politicians say it, I take it under the advisement that they don't know really what the heck they're talking about. But someone said, <laughs> "Say zero trust," because it'll mean you know what you're talking about. And I'm going to guess that, like, when you know, there's executive orders saying all government entities will use zero trust. Is that even practical? And then maybe it is down the road. I don't think it is now. Chase Cunningham may argue you can do zero trust all day long everywhere, but from a practicality purpose, we're not quite there yet. Does application whitelisting, is it, is it, is it sync in with zero trust? Is it a form of zero trust? Is it the gap that we need to use now before we get to everybody accepting zero trust? Because really, I mean, zero trust, you're not allowing anything to work without authentication. I'll give you my take and I'll, I'll let Devin jump in on this. It's zero trust means, to your point, means something to everybody that it means something different to everybody ask. Yeah. And it's this huge umbrella term. I, I think application whitelisting, application allow listing has a place within a bigger, larger zero trust framework. And, you know, Chase, and I've talked to Chase any number of times and, and he likes to, uh, refer to application allow listing is just assume everything is dirty and it assume everything is is bad and that's fundamentally what application allow listing application whitelisting is doing so in that respect it fits into the a bigger zero trust framework um we'll, we'll take it a step further in within the last month or two months it is nist has rolled out um plans to initiate a, a new what guidance, I guess, for zero trust frameworks and what that would potentially look like and and examples. And PCmatic was chosen as one of 18 security companies that are going to have a voice into how NIST builds that framework. And obviously, what we're bringing to the table is our definition of what application allow listing and application whitelisting can be. So um, again, it's going to depend on who you talk to about zero trust. But I, I think that in, in the general overall spirit of let's assume everything's dirty. This is logically where you should be at as it comes to endpoint protection. Yeah. It seems like um, I actually just got off a call with our federal team right, right before this one. And some of our federal consultants were saying that uh, there's still like a majority of people in the federal government that don't know what zero trust is. I, I think most people don't, I don't think I know what zero trust is. I mean, the way that I think about it is that it's, it's basically a mindset. Like I, I think zero trust is a way to approach all the different pieces of your architecture. Um, and we're just one little segment of that endpoint protection where we're taking that to, you know, approach like Corey's saying of assuming that everything is basically known bad, but yeah, it, it seems like it's gone down the same road as every other um, industry buzzword, you know, um, maybe like our or next gen, or I mean, they all start as something that maybe has really good intentions and really focused and balloons, uh, balloons out into something that nobody really knows exactly what it what it means. So moving back to that NIST document, Corey, real quick, if I can make if I can ask a request of, of PCmatic, if you're part of this this writing, 
make it readable for make make a version that people can quickly <laughs> go through the the current the current NIST zero trust document like 682 pages. I don't know who's I don't know who's reading that or who has <laughs> who has the time to read that. I mean, unless you just are going to de- dedicate a month of your life because it's so all of their documents are so minutia heavy and I mean, and they need to be obviously what they do it needs to be. But hopefully there is the NIST here's the NIST framework for what you're you guys are creating and then here is the cliff note version to give you the main points so you don't have to spend forever going through all this to find what you want. I, we will definitely submit the request. We'll probably move it from 682 to 675 as yeah. a result. But it, the encouraging part to me is you're, you know, you're seeing legislation and any number of things built around liability and pointing to NIST framework as, as kind of the standard. But you've also got organizations that are kind of taking the NIST standards and then building out for their particular vertical, you know, the cliff note version. Perfect example, there's an organization called K-12-6, mm-hmm. which is a nonprofit that that I think you've yeah, had a chance to, yep. yeah, you've had a chance to interact with those guys. They recently released their recommended standards built off of NIST standards for K-12 school districts, knowing that the majority of the districts couldn't even dream about implementing what NIST is recommending, but they were able to digest it down into some bite-sized pieces that that they're recommending for school districts. The bonus for us is they're at, they're talking about application allow listing and the benefits for school districts. But I I see maybe there's there's going to be more of that. There's going to be more uh, efforts to digest it down and and make it consumable for for uh, smaller organizations. All right. It could never, it, you know, and back to it, that could never dream about doing everything that would be required of some of these zero trust. Um, you know, suggestions. Sure. So, okay. So there's a list. Someone's listening to this podcast saying that this application whitelisting that or it sounds like a great idea. How do I deploy it? So if I want to, so I'm, I want to deploy it at my, at my residence here. Obviously I know it's largely business. It's, it's more, it's a business focused thing, but I, obviously home users could benefit from it too. So how do I, how do I get it started? Cause most of the folks here are going to be sitting at home saying, Hey, I can maybe protect my kids, protect my elderly parents. How do I, how does it, how does it work? How do I get it rolling? Yeah, it, it depends a little bit on the uh, on the vertical there, but mm-hmm. it's, that's one of the benefits of the approach that we take is re- and, and removing so much of the overhead is that you know, especially in the consumer space, you're able to deploy as protections for your home and your kids, like you said, that is recommended by the highest agencies of of the government, and and, and you can go to our website, purchase the product, download it, click five prompts and uh, the product installed and running and protecting you. There's no, you know, you're not going to all of a sudden not be able to use your computer. You can still use Word and Chrome and everything, your normal software with. It's just, it just works. But it only protects the endpoint, right? So if, so if I download it onto this one machine I'm looking at now, it'll protect it, that one. But if I have other devices on my network, it, 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 it doesn't spread out into that, correct? Correct. Yeah, we're we're just focusing on the endpoint itself. So we'd be looking to you know get installs and licenses onto every device in the corporate network or in a mm-hmm. home environment. Gotcha. So, so this is an interesting question for the future, which I just thought of sitting here thinking about this. Is there thought process down the line to incorporating this kind of technology into Internet of Things devices? So I mean, I have like 24 devices attached. It's me and my wife. I have 24 things attached to my home network, from smart TVs, iPhones, iPads, my computers. 
my my smart amplifier for my guitar all has a, has a connection. But those all have obviously built-in vulnerabilities. Is there a thought process down the line to create a line of products for, for that environment like this? Um, there could be. I, I... Oh, we shot. We we kind of you kind of cut out on us there, Devin. There was a little uh, little lag there. Sorry. Sorry. It might be that. the cat. The yeah, cat is you, messing thought, with his Wi-Fi signal. Yeah, I thought that was. Yeah. I thought that was a virtual <laughs> background until I saw the cat moving around back. There. <laughs> <laughs> no, sorry about the audio issue there. Um, completely lost my train of thought of, uh, of Internet of Things devices. Thing. Right, yeah. Internet of Things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think for most of those, um, they would typically be handled at like a firewall level. Some mm-hmm. which firewalls are typically taking the same kind of app whitelisting approach approach that we're applying on the device. I mean, that's a normal network behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, otherwise, you'd have to be supporting, you know, yeah, um, 150 different operating mm-hmm. systems for different mm-hmm. smart TVs or whatever to get some kind of a application installed. So I think that would probably be the best route is uh, some maybe router plugin that could, you know, fit into most of the mesh networks in in a in a home environment and offer some better default deny protection for those type of things. All right. Is that available? Is that something someone could find, or is it probably more like a a dream down the line, maybe. Yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure if it is. I know some of those solutions um, have some pretty cool, like um, child monitoring type tools. Like you sure. can web, you know, do web filtering and everything uh, pretty easily through those. But I'm not sure if anybody's taking that kind of approach for Internet of Things specifically. Okay, just a. I just kind of thought that question. I thought it's right other. So let's go back to the small businesses, uh, Corey. So. Um, Oh hey, I just got, sorry. I just got a pop up from Zoom that I'm getting a gift. I'm yeah. running out of time. We've removed the 40 minute time. Like, Yay for me, present. All right, so Corey, so so business to business again. So I'm a small corporation. Let's say I'm a mom and pop. I got 10 endpoints, 20 users. What do I? And I want I want to have. I can only spend so much money on cybersecurity. Is application whitelisting the thing you'd recommend they start with first? So assuming they have firewalls and you know all that basic basic stuff the IT put in place and they're using Office 365 and they have their multi-factor authentication for that setup and everything else how do they get how do they start with down the application whitelisting road with you guys it, to go back to where you were kind of headed on the front end of the end of that question sure. yes it <laughs> absolutely should should be one of the the first things they do um I'd get fired if I didn't say that, right? <laughs> sure, but no, so, honestly, come on. We're just trying to be honest here. <laughs> but I, I think the the critical part here, as people are are realizing, they're hearing about, you know, it's layers to the onion, right? It's layers to security. There are good layers, there are better layers. There are some layers that are incredibly expensive that are a massive investment that is that are really not practical for small and medium-sized companies out there. So our our focus our direction we give a lot of the the uh, folks we talk to is knock out those basics. Unfortunately, we deal with a lot of companies and even interacting with managed service providers that are servicing these companies that quickly go in and do an evaluation of, of security and, and realize the basics aren't even being taken care of. Mm-hmm. So my guidance would be take care of those basics. We see application whitelisting as being one of those basic things that can be implemented cost effectively and efficiently. And then you can look at XDR and EDR and and all these other uh, more sophisticated solutions if you want to go that way. But it's not one or the other. It's take care of the preventative stuff, 
be ready to detect and respond and deal with something if it ever happens. But that's not at the expense of the preventative steps you can take that are typically much more cost effective. So do you have um, do you have like a team there? So let's say a small business, uh, the IT guy says, hey, we want to do application whitelisting. But the CEO says, I want my programs to run or blah, blah. I mean, how do you how do you get, do you have the capability to help these IT folks in these small companies convince management that this is something you need to go down? Because, you know, I've seen a lot of companies that I mean, I, for me, one of the things I would if I was in charge, I would say nobody can use their personal email in the corporate network. It's a small thing. It's not really an application whitelisting thing, but it's a, like you said, the basics. It's a simple thing that 90% of the cases FBI ever worked, I've said this every time, everybody's repeating it now mm-hmm. as I say it, happened through some kind of social social engineering on email. Yet corporations allow people to use their personal email on their network. So how do you get over the boss that says, well, this would restrict you know, the capability for people to do stuff on, on the network, blah, blah, blah. Do you, how, do you, how do you overcome that for them? I think it's one of the key things we looked at as we developed the product over time is we realized one of the big knocks about taking this approach was, does it potentially block something it shouldn't be blocking? Mm-hmm. And what does that mean? Does that mean the production line is shut down for the day? Or does that mean the accounting department can't spit out invoices for the afternoon? How can you deploy this, this type of approach without that being an issue? So one of the things we've we've done is one we've tried to continue to expand our whitelist of what we have visibility to and what we can uh, credibly define as as a known good that can sit on that that global whitelist. So that's that's a number one. And then at deployment, we've got an onboarding team that will spend time with each individual customer identifying anything that might potentially be proprietary or one-off that we've never seen before. And we make sure that that's added to the whitelist. So that's not going to be blocked when it when it shouldn't be blocked. Um, so we do a lot of that handholding upfront. In many cases, we're also working with managed service providers that are using this technology to service their end customers, and they're doing some of that that work. But that's really an ongoing process, and that's one of the things that we are super sensitive to because it's, we know it's one of the reasons that people haven't gone down this road before. And if they know of it or have considered it, one of the reasons they may have decided to go a different direction. And to the people that say it's too hard to use, too hard to implement, how do you counter that That because for, for a lot of people, everything technically oriented is too hard, too, too difficult. So how easy is it if, uh, if, if you were to go download PCmatic today for your home? How easy would it be to set it up and get application whitelisting running? Let me throw my spin on it, and then I'll let Devin jump in on this. Okay. From a consumer perspective, you can download this thing, install it, set it, and forget it. I mean, that that's the dream of every security application is you don't have to touch it. Uh, our, most of our consumers have it installed. It's fully functional. It's working as it should, and they rarely interact with it other than getting an occasional email update that shows that a particular scan has been run or whatever the case may be. But it's functioning in the background as it should and protecting their endpoints, and they they don't look under the hood. Now, as we go to the professional side, that's where we open up the manageability options, you know, any any slew of possibilities of how they can, uh, you know, set up how the product functions and even get in and interact with it and add things to the whitelist on the fly if they know they're running something that happens to be a one-off. So there's really, there's two different customer experiences. The majority of PCMatic customers happen to be consumers and they're using it and 
if if they do fully realize application whitelisting is what's in that engine that's protecting protecting them, they're not even dealing with it firsthand. Professional uh, side, it happens to be a little different. Yeah, the um, and on the consumer side, the the software set is typically so much more limited too. I mean, most of your consumers are looking to use the Office suite and they want to use their web browser and mm -hmm. maybe run Spotify or something like that. You know, they've got a few applications that they typically use, but constantly. It's constantly impressed me still that I'll find some kind of obscure obscure application that I need to use to do something and download it, and it it just runs like normal. It's it's something we've already seen before. I mean, that's just an outstanding number of applications that are already in place, so stuff just works. Um, and on the business side, like Corey said, with the manageability being being opened up a little bit, um, the, the UI for for managing on the business side is super user friendly. I, I mean, it's so easy to be able to go in and see here's the things that were blocked today in my environment here's the devices they were blocked on here's a, an easy selector with a button where i can say for my whole company i need to allow this for a group of devices or a department i need to allow this and you click that button and the changes go out in real time to devices you don't wait an hour you don't wait you know the second half of the day for updates to come down or for something to get allowed i mean it can happen in, inside of a minute that something gets blocked and it says yep that's good to go does is there a setting there so let's say a, a consumer finds an obscure piece of software that they need for whatever let's say they want to convert their spotify playlist to an itunes playlist and they find some obscure application they can download that'll do that for them on their machine but it gets it's not on your application is there a way to submit that say hey can you guys just take a look at this and make sure it's not going to screw me over is that a is that a function yeah there's kind of two ways where that one happens automatically behind the scenes. So they don't even have to do anything for it to go to our research team and get, get put into our queue to look at it. And two, shooting a note to our, our support team. They're super responsive on the home and the business side, where in, in both cases, somebody could say, hey, I think I need to run this, but I'm not super sure. Maybe they're not com comfortable enough to, to allow it or just want somebody to double check or something and they get it turned around for them super quick so that they can can run what they need to. Great. So, so if, if, so for those listening, if you're interested in PCmatic.com, go to that webpage, there's two options. I'm looking at it right now. It says for home and for business. Then I assume it's just a click and link and buy and download. I assume it's not more complicated. Well, business might be a little more complicated because the endpoint application and installation. Do you, if, if a business, uh, if a business purchase it, does it auto push to all the end users or do you have to define the end users within the environment? Uh, you'd have to define them a little bit, but it, it's super flexible for what fits them the best. We, we've had uh, some customers that have, uh, you know, a few hundred different locations around the country and they need to push software out to them. And they've got a great setup for pushing software out through a third party tool or something. You can just drop our installer into it and they have a, a couple thousand endpoints onboarded in like an hour. Um, but you can also just email it out to 20 different people that are, you know, in your small business and they download and install it or you know, you throw it on a thumb drive and get it installed. I mean, it's a whole bunch of different ways. But So I just came up with another question that just came to me. So work from home issues, obviously. A lot of where with COVID-19, we got a lot of work from home stuff. How does does this provide an extra extra layer of protection that may not have been there initially for companies um, because of the work from home environment? In other words, they say, okay, we're gonna, you know, we're gonna give everybody a PCmatic license. Does that is that is there a configuration or is it, is it created that way to protect potential threats coming from the, the work from home connection? Definitely. 
Yeah, it doesn't really matter to us. I, I, I think there's two things to add to that. It doesn't really matter to us where the device is. So, you know, IT can have all their remote staff wherever they're at, they're at their homes and they've got an internet connection. They can manage it just like they've got, you know, 20 people on the same network in an office. Um, and that comes into play with some of the other features that we have in the product too that go beyond whitelisting, especially in the small business space. So we, we integrate several different tools that um, are centered around remote management. So having a file manager to upload and download files to machines, having command prompt access remotely. We've got a, a remote VNC session, like a team viewer type session that you can use into devices too. So especially in the work from home space, you know, it gives you remote management over machines just in, in that one solution. Awesome. So whenever I get tech guys in, I always like to ask, what's the future of cyber going to be for you? What do you think? What do you see coming down the line from a threat perspective, from a risk perspective? Doesn't have to be a big, long answer, but I mean, every, every, it, it's good from a strategic standpoint to look to the future. What, what badness do you see coming down the road? I think uh, I'll take a stab at going first. I think that we're kind of already starting to see this a little bit, but I think ransomware in particular is going to um, continue to be more focused on uh, stealing data rather than just encrypting it. it. Seems like more and more of them now are are not only just encrypting the files on your machine, but they're also taking all the data that they're coming across as well. And whether that's a home customer or mostly in the business space, now they've got the opportunity to leverage releasing user data and emails and passwords and credit card information, whatever it is, uh, you know, onto the dark web or selling it to the highest bidder to get you to try to pay a ransom. And it seems like more and more are going to continue to go that way to get around the excuse of having backups or whatever the case is where you could just quickly restore. You've got kind of another aspect to it. And ransom, before I get to you, Corey, real quick. So let me, so let me focus on that ransomware question real quick for a side question that's came to me. So ransomware, obviously in order to run, it runs an application, correct? So if right. it's and not, if it's not on the white list, it would not run. Is that correct? Yep. That's, that's correct. Yeah. Uh, okay. Corey. <laughs> Let's let's do the good news, uh, bad news, good news. Okay. Bad news, bad news is Devin's absolutely right. Ransomware is just going to continue to get more sophisticated. I think one of the things that um, that we should be watching for that that people have been talking about for years that it, it hasn't quite hit yet is is mobile ransomware and how it impacts mobile devices. You know, the speculation I've heard for years is that's where that's where the real money is. If we start talking about ransomware tied to people's individual mobile devices, what what does that look like, and what's what's the marketed you know, for, for that, because we already know this is a viable business model, the way it's been set up. You can get your act, you can get your hands on the, uh, the, uh, the ransomware kit for about 10 bucks. That'll generate a couple hundred thousand dollars worth of revenue. You just got to find a way to, to in, infect someone. Heck, if you don't even want to spend the 10 bucks, you just cut a, an affiliate deal and promise to share the revenue. So we know that's there. I think it's just going to be different, different targets and different ways of deploying ransomware is going to be the issue. And fortunately, we, we go a long way towards helping towards that. The, the good news is I think you're starting to see more and more talk around you know, what our friend Scott Agenbaum uh, says, Darren, is, is developing a cyber mindset. And people becoming more sensitive to being better digital citizens, and I, you're do, you're seeing some really cool things being done, you know, kind of collectively within communities, but even more broadly, a, a state like North Dakota, who I've spent some time up there, and they've got a fascinating program called K20W, that says 
every child in North Dakota school from kindergarten on up through college and even into the to the workforce as an adult is going to be exposed to cybersecurity awareness training at some level. I think we urgently need that across the country. And the more we see initiatives like that, the more the closer we, we will get to the, the cyber mindset like Scott talks about, because like you're fond of saying, like Scott's fond of saying, 90 percent of this stuff can be prevented. It really can. And so much of it be- begins and ends in a lot of cases with that end user that's there at the keyboard. What are we doing to better educate those those people? And in some cases, educate our children about how to how to be better digital citizens. So I, I think there's real momentum there. I think there's going to be some money behind it. I think you're going to see a lot of federal money coming quickly that can be used towards that. And I, I think that'll help. Combine that with using better tools. I think we've got a fighting chance here. Yeah, Scott's got a nice logo there. Get cyber secure mindset. I like get cyber smart. I think getting cyber smart is what we want people to get. Because if they get a little I cyber like smarter, they get a lot cyber safer. That's I like a, it. But that's another podcast anyway. So. Mm-hmm. All right, Corey, Devin, thank you very much. I very much appreciate your time. Um, and uh, so, folks, check out PCMatic. If you have any final pitches for PCMatic before I go? Visit PCMatic.com. You can see either the consumer product or the professional product. And I happen to be a, a big LinkedIn guy. I think Devin's out there too. Darren, that's how you, you and I connected once upon a time. Yep. So we love interacting and, and having conversations about security. Um, we'll talk about PCmatic all day, but mm-hmm. yeah. also also happy to talk about security in general. Yeah, when do you ever sleep, Corey? Because all you do is post on LinkedIn, it seems like that's all I do. Rarely. <laughs> abs- rarely. All right, guys. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thanks, Thank Darren. You. So that's going to do it for episode 47 of the Cyber Guy podcast. Thank you very much for taking the time to listen. Please uh, let your friends and family know of my new podcast, the Get Cyber Smart podcast. You can find it on all your regular podcast outlets. Remember, as you go through your week, that knowledge is protection. If you can understand the threats that are targeting you, you can assess your risk online. You can proceed wisely. Thanks for listening. Have a good week, and we will talk to you soon.